Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. One of the team captains, one of the leaders, one of the great special teams players in all of the NFL. Please welcome Chris Maragos. Yo, Philly, hey. Chris Maragos was the captain of the Philadelphia Eagles when he injured his knee in a game with the Carolina Panthers in 2017. He never played in an NFL game again. Maragos says it was the medical team's failure to properly treat his knee that ended his career. And a jury agreed, awarding Maragos $43.5 million in a medical malpractice lawsuit. Joining me is Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Harry, describe the allegations here. He suffered an on-field injury, and that was when there was this diagnosis by these orthopods of this posterior cruciate ligament injury. But the basis of this jury verdict here was that these doctors either misdiagnosed or didn't take seriously enough this issue of a meniscal tear at the same time they were treating the other ligament. And by virtue of missing that and sort of advancing Moragos and giving him a green light to start to practice and play again, they basically let that meniscus tear get much, much worse and get to a point that it ended his playing career. The doctors, the defendants who oversaw his rehabilitation said that they were aware of the meniscus issue, but deemed that the tissue was stable and that surgery would have caused more harm than good. The defendant, James Bradley, who's been the head orthopedic surgeon for the Pittsburgh Steelers for about 30 years, testified that if Maragos had needed a second surgery, he would have done it. Quote, I'm a surgeon. That's what I do. If I had to operate on that, I'd operate on that in a heartbeat. The general kind of message that you get from orthopedic surgeons and orthopods in general is that the meniscus will heal itself on its own and that surgery is not the number one option, as opposed to certain kinds of knee injuries that are definitely not going to heal themselves, like ACLs classically. So I think there's a little bit of a division of opinion here. And it sounds like the advice that was given was very common, but most people would get. And the question is whether a professional athlete, you know, who is going to be putting a different level of strain on his meniscus should have gotten different advice than, you know, the sort of weekend warrior or whatever. Is there any indication that the doctors were being pressured to get him back on the field? I get the feeling that was in the background, but it wasn't explicitly part of the case. But uh, it clearly seems that was the message that Chris Moragos' attorney was was making and and one that presumably the jury bought into. Frankly, I worry about whether a jury of lay people, that's our system, but uh, whether that's the best way to get a complex diagnostic and treatment issue like this decided. By the way, one of the things that a lot of people are questioning is, you know, how this decision was made without it. There was no orthopedic surgeon who who testified for the plaintiff in this case. It was a trauma surgeon, somebody who's in a totally different specialty who they relied upon. So it's not like the orthopedic community was divided over this case. I'm wondering if, too, if the jury was a little bit 
starstruck because there was a star-studded witness list, at least a star-studded football player's witness list. His former teammates, Nick Foles, Trey Burton, and Jordan Hicks testified, and he testified. And I wonder how much that had to do with the verdict. I think it's a fair question. Um, Clearly, you know, I think the jury got kind of a window into this world of sports celebrity. Uh, my sense is that, that that a jury made a decision, you know, on the basis of a lot of sympathetic testimony from people who, you know, who they may have been excited to hear from, but they didn't really get the on-point medical insight from, an, from a true expert on this procedure. Not to take away anything away from trauma surgeons, but they work in a very different environment with a very different set of choices. It, it, that's what makes me question the, uh, the reasonableness of this decision. Now, the jury took less than three hours to deliberate after a two-week trial that had reams of doctor's notes, MRIs, medical charts, a video of the surgery, and medical testimony. There's a lot to worry about here. I will not be shocked if this decision gets modified or reversed on appeal. It seems like there was kind of a rush to judgment here. What kind of an appellate issue do you see, though? It's an unusual case because, obviously, the, you know, 40 million dollars in uh, uh, plus million is all economic loss. So I think the the question of the reasonableness of the trier fact relying upon a surgeon who's not a specialist and, and the decision of the judge to let that issue go to the jury is to me a question that is likely to come up on appeal. As far as the verdict itself, eight-year career, which is more than double the average NFL career. He's 31 at the time. And a financial analyst told the jury that having his career cut short cost him at least $8.7 million in future NFL earnings had he been able to play through 2022. The award was five times that amount. Where do you think that number came from? I'm not sure how they got to such an inflated number. By the way, I think that's also a legitimate basis for an appeal and and a reason this could get cut down. Honestly, I I think the suggestion that the jury got excited to be brought into the middle of this sort of sexy case, you know, with the major sports celebrities, certainly is plausible here and and a good reason why an appellate court should consider sort of cutting this down to size if the verdict stands at all. And also, this is a Philadelphia jury, a trial happening at about the same time the hometown Eagles were making a run to the Super Bowl. It sort of adds to the pizzazz. Yeah, look, I think Morago's made a sympathetic case to the jury that he would be out there. He would have been out there playing on Sunday in the Super Bowl, you know, had it not been for uh, doctors making this decision. So. Yeah, it definitely seems that a uh, this is this is not a, a decision that has hallmarks of kind of careful, reason, dispassionate thinking, and and uh, you know as sympathetic as I am to uh, Chris Morago that he should get the appropriate care and diagnosis. I do worry that this one is, does not seem to be uh, a decision that was made with with a lot of care for um, for getting it exactly right. Let me ask you this. Neither the NFL nor any NFL team was a defendant in this lawsuit. And if there was this push to get him back before the time when he should have been physically, why wouldn't the teams be also liable? It's a great question. You know, obviously there are all kinds of contractual provisions about players having the final decisions. It's certainly a big question what the potential liability of a sports team is if it, if it pushes somebody back 
too hard. I, I know that these issues come up in the contract um, and in the negotiations and, you know, are issues that are covered by lots of insurance. But I, I think it's a, it's a good point that these kinds of decisions, teams have to be very, very careful about making sure players take the time that they need. Obviously, we've seen the NFL step in in areas like traumatic brain injury and concussion watch and impose uh, external requirements just to make sure that there's no, you know, taking of liberties on that. But I think this case raises hard questions about how these decisions get made. And honestly, if I was a doctor treating an NFL player after this, I would definitely be a little more worried than I was before this jury verdict. Well, Marigo said, I hope this decision sends a message to teams' medical staffs that players are people, not just contracts. And his attorney said, this case and this jury may have changed the course of history by now forcing these team doctors and trainers to stop worrying about when a player might return to play and start thinking about the next 50 years of a player's life. So do you think that they're right? I think that's very harsh, and I think that's hyperbole. You know, I've been involved in some legal issues around uh, professional sports teams, around, like, prescribing and and medication, and it's a very complex environment with these incredibly high-level athletes and very serious medical trainers and, and physicians. And the suggestion that people are just sort of, you know, putting patient concerns, patient health uh, second in the interest of getting players back on the field, to me, is, is just not consistent with any of the professionals that I know in this area or in the way this, this business works. There are hard choices, but I think for many players, they themselves are pushing and the, the doctors are the ones telling them to slow down. I understand that Chris Morago feels very wrong here and that his lawyer fully supported that, but I, I don't think it aligns with the reality on the ground where, where doctors really are and trainers are, are working hard to not take risks in a sport that is just imposing enormous health risks on, on people just for being out there on the field every Sunday. Is it unusual that this case got to trial? Are these the kinds of cases that are usually settled? No, it's a great point. First of all, in general, medical malpractice cases settle, I think, at well over a 90% Flip. So it was an unusual case. I think that whenever you have these economic damages that are a kind of lost economic opportunity on the part of Chris Moragos or a person who's a real high earner, it creates very difficult, unusual situations. Because for most of us, you know, the impact, the economic impact of a knee injury like this would not come anywhere close to tens of millions of dollars. So I think it's an unusual case. Clearly, on the uh, insurance company, and the defense side, they, they had this one back. It would have uh, kind of bitten the bullet and taken a, an expensive settlement if, if that was available. I, I, don't, I don't know how that really went. But um, I, I certainly think in the future cases, there'll be a lot more pressure to settle both on the defense counsel and on the uh, insurance companies as a result of this verdict. Harry, do you think this verdict will bring changes before the injury happens? I, I think it's a very tough environment. Look, I think the focus on the traumatic brain injuries and in general on the, the pounding that these guys take on their um, on their bodies, you know, in the extent to which so many ex-NFL people have trouble walking, you know, have major, major uh, physical consequences down the road for, for their playing careers is a huge, huge issue that needs more attention. And honestly, is, if this case does one good thing in terms of calling, calling attention to beyond brain injuries to the ways in which we need to be worried about the limits of how far people can go in professional sports, and, uh, you know, I think that that will be a good thing. Maybe all of that was playing in the subconscious of the jurors, you know, all the revelations about concussions in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think it's a good thing. I remember I was in law school 
30 years ago, I remember hearing Lee Steinberg, who was one of the early super agents. He was talking 25 years ago about people focus on the high salaries these guys get for playing professional football. But in fact, his description was of people who really sacrificed their bodies and paid for it with pain and with really lost mobility and the rest of their lives in many cases. So um, I think it's a good thing that we're calling attention to that. And, and if this leads to more conservative decision-making by teams, by doctors, I personally think that's a good thing. Thanks, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Second Circuit Court of Appeals is deciding whether Vermont Law School will be allowed to permanently cover murals depicting the Underground Railroad without violating an artist's rights law. Artist Samuel Curson argued that the school hiding his two 1994 murals behind bolted-in acoustic panels violates the Visual Arts Rights Act, or VARA. But the school says it complied with the law when it hid murals that students complained about for decades as cartoonish depictions of slaves and promotion of the white savior complex. The dispute raises questions regarding how far VARA limits the property rights of owners of physical art. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Kyle Janner. Kyle, tell us a little about these murals and the fight over them. The mural is uh, actually two large panels that were uh, put up in the Vermont School of Law in 1994. And they're kind of these really colorful depictions of various you know, aspects of, you know, I guess the Underground Railroad and slavery and, you know, nominally to depict you know, Vermont's involvement in uh, the Underground Railroad. Apparently, for decades, students have complained that the depictions of slaves are um, quite cartoonish. 
and that it also kind of portrays kind of a white savior complex uh, as kind of the message. So the, the schools wanted to take it down. The problem is that there's this Visual Artist Rights Act that allows artists to protect their work from being you know, altered, to you know, make their art not what they wanted it to be, and also to not have it destroyed kind of without any notice or their consent. It's got some pretty strong wording in some places, but also the school gave him notice, offered him the artist a chance to um, remove the painting, and he said there's no way to possibly do it without destroying the murals. So they said, well, and we're going to cover him over or something at this point. And he really kind of fought him tooth and nail. And then they, they came down on the solution of bolting these large panels that, you know, completely covered them. So they didn't destroy the art, but they make it impossible for them to be seen. And they said they had no intention of ever taking down the panels. So uh, the artist sued and saying that, you know, it's a, the same thing as, you know, destroying them. The uh, counter argument has included things like, if a museum decides to put a painting into a closet, the artist can't sue them for, for taking it out of public view. So this really shouldn't be that much different. They, have, they don't have a right to protect the art and force it to be seen um, when it's, you know, on someone else's property. So it's gotten up to this point. I don't think it certainly didn't seem like the Second Circuit judges were all that intent on reversing the decision to say that the Vermont uh, Law School didn't have to take down the panels or didn't uh, create any violations by putting them up. So I think to the average person who's seen, you know, monuments come down and all kinds of things come down as society has changed and what's acceptable has changed, this seems Mm -hmm. kind of odd. In 2021, how did the district court rule? What did it base its decision on? Uh, The district court said that the um, law doesn't cover hiding works, even though you know both parties agree that it'll be impossible to remove them. It says that BARA is mainly designed to protect the integrity of works, but not necessarily the right to be publicly visible, as I said. So mural is still there and it still um, exists. Uh, it's not destroyed. Um, it just can't be seen. And VARA wasn't designed to have every piece of art that's visible, you know, in control of another party. Again, this is you know, we're talking about art that is not in the possession of the artist anymore. They don't have a right to, you know, make them show it everywhere and forever. So the court came down that way. And, you know, it is an interesting area of law. There have been a lot of cases in the past, including um, a, a giant mural that got painted over in uh, New York City. It was a kind of a graffiti art that the owner of the building painted over. That led to a uh, Second Circuit ruling. What was the question whether graffiti's art or what was the question? The Second Circuit affirmed a $6.5 million award, actually, in that case. Queens uh, developer you know, has paid the graffiti artists because of the Visual Artist Rights Act, even though the graffiti wasn't necessarily uh, intended to be permanent. The property owner was looking to demolish the buildings to build luxury apartments. The artists sued uh, to protect the graffiti, and uh, Brooklyn District Court denied their motion for a preliminary injunction but it said it would um, issue an opinion shortly after. And then the property owner painted over the artwork in between <laughs> the court denial of injunction and a court opinion after that. A jury later determined that the property owner um, violated the law by whitewashing the graffiti. And you know, the judge awarded the damages, actually. So um, and the Second Circuit uh, upheld that. So That's I think it, crazy it, 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 to me. are all fact dependent. But yeah, it, this all stems kind of from... Um, in Europe, there has always been a pretty strong uh, moral rights that are a little bit different than copyright. There's kind of a more equitable view of, you know, what, what an artist's rights over their creation. 
and uh, as part of the Berne Convention, which is an international treaty, um, countries agree to certain standards on the intellectual property law. The U.S. was required to do a little bit of something on that front, and VARA was kind of the answer to that. So um, we agreed to incorporate some aspects of uh, moral rights. I think they're a little bit more um, robust in uh, in Europe and some other places, but uh, VARA is still there and gives at least limited rights. Um, you generally have to give notice, and you know it is not all encompassing. There's not you're not completely um, stuck as a property owner in a lot of cases, but you do have to you know jump through through some hoops. So at the Second Circuit, one of the judges said, what about taking down art and putting it in a closet? So that's allowed, taking down art and putting it in a closet, but you can't yeah. cover it yeah. up? Yeah, I mean, the artist, if you, because otherwise the museum could never change which arts are out on display in a museum. So, you know, it's you're not destroying the integrity of the work. You're just deciding, oh, I'm going to put this piece out today and then this piece out tomorrow or this week out in January and then in February, we've got a special exhibit coming in um, from out of town, and this stuff will go in the closet. Navarra doesn't protect your right to have your work displayed where it is right now forever. If you have the Mona Lisa and, you know, someone takes your art and then and paints over, like, you know, her picking her nose or something, then that would kind of <laughs> speak to the, uh, the integrity of the work uh, would be kind of damaged there and, you know, um, that's the kind of thing, or just any other kind of destruction or um, mutilation of the work, it becomes an issue at that point. But, but like I said, it's not necessarily a display right, but these cases get complicated when it's a mural or a statue that's not really movable. It's a clearer case when it's a painting, but when it's something that, you know, a property owner might want to use that wall for something, or a property owner might want to tear down the building. Um, so they at least have to give a chance to the artist to to take the art away, to reserve it to the extent that they can, but um, it doesn't give the artist the permanent right over the building. was one of the questions at the Second Circuit whether this, and I understand that the piece of plywood or whatever that's covering it is not actually touching it. They've been really careful not to actually touch the mural, Mm -hmm. whether that's a modification, and the artist was arguing that just putting that up was a modification. Did that get any traction with the judges? It didn't seem to, from what I could tell from the judges. I think one of the judges was kind of uh, grappling it, you know, like it seemed more of kind of an equitable concern, kind of a more of a moral concern of what the rights of this artist should, could or should be. Um, but he, even he himself was like, you might lose this on the merits, but just why exactly did you do what you did um, to the law school's uh, counsel? Um, and, you know, the counsel said, you know, we gave him, you know, every chance. We, we said, you can remove it. Um, you said, we said, you know, we're not going to destroy it. And we considered a curtain, but we felt like that was going to be a distraction on top of everything. So they wanted to stay a little bit more permanent. So, and they said, you know, the panel in theory could be removed if a different administration decided to take a different view. But no, there's no uh, plan with the current administration at all to, uh, to remove the panels at any point. At the oral arguments, was there a discussion about why the law school was doing this, about how students had been complaining about the mural and its depictions? There was mention about the student complaints, um, but it wasn't, you know, they kind of focused in more on the legal aspects of it. They're trying to figure out kind of where these definitions are. And they talked about things like the passage of time, for example. Um, and like, if you if you put this art in this situation and 
um, I think the law um, either explicitly or case law says, you know, passage of time um, doesn't really count as a modification or, you know, a threat to it. Having it out on display and, you know, over time it gets dusty or gets faded or something like that, um, that kind of thing um, isn't covered by the law. There's limits. So like most laws of this, of this type, there's, you know, exceptions, there's waivers, there's, um, you know, limited durations of rights. In these cases, there's always a bunch of facts that come into play. So the judges were kind of harping on some of those and just kind of prodding if, if there was any other avenues where this law either does or doesn't apply. So, Kyle, do you have an idea how you think the Second Circuit will rule? I think this is going to be a pretty straightforward decision. Um, I, I would be pretty surprised based on the way the orals went, which is always kind of a, a lawyer will tell you the dangerous thing to do is rely on the oral arguments. But at the same time, sometimes it seems pretty clear. And I think these um, judges seems pretty um, ready to affirm for the most part. It's funny because the part of the law basically says, you know, if they sign a contract that says the law doesn't apply, then the law doesn't apply, which you would think it kind of goes without saying. It basically spells out that, hey, you can also just, you know, contract these rights away to the property owners. In other words, telling the property owners, like, hey, you want to avoid this headache? Just uh, get this down in writing that, you know, I can do with my wall what I want to do with my wall. Yeah, and it, that's the terms for me commissioning you to paint on this wall. As with most areas of law, they get really contentious. A lot of these situations can be headed off in advance. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Kyle. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Kyle Janner. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.